morning, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Glad to have you with us here. Uh, on our way to introduce our guests in our discussion this morning, I want to remind you once again that uh, Mark Steiner and the Steiner Show itself is not retiring, are not going away. We're going to continue podcasting and creating projects with people across this community and across the country. Uh, we want to encourage you all to uh, either go over to uh, the Mark Steiner Show webpage, the Facebook page, the Mark Steiner Show, Intelligent Talk Radio. Sign up there, or you can go to steinershow.org and uh, leave your email there in the right place, and you'll be added to our list, uh, or, or to write to Valerie at steinershow.org, uh, and we'll put you on our mailing list. We're thousands of people, thousands and thousands. I don't know how many people we have now. Valerie knows. I forget. <laughs> but lots of folks. And join that. We'll let you know how we're progressing, what we're doing next. We have three more full days of programming here, WEA, which we're looking forward to doing. And uh, we are going to cover this hour some very important local topics again. Uh, we see the battle for the mandatory minimum going on inside of city council and what that's, what that's uh, raising up in our community and the issues there. We had a conversation yesterday with a city councilman um, um, and uh, Mr. Bullock was with us, Dr. Bullock was with us, and today Zeke Cohen's in the house. We're going to talk to him about that. Also joining me in studio is Bobby Marvin Holmes, uh, of course, former producer here at the Mark Steiner Show and helped produce first edition with Sean Yost as well, uh, a leading community activist, founder of Son of a Dream LLC and director of Live Young Blood. This documentary, two two documentaries now that mm. came out. Three. Three. Three or two? Three? Three? <laughs> yep, yep, it's three. Okay, yep, three. Yep, I'm sorry, three. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut yeah. you short. It's all right. <laughs> and, um, and a man who married up like the rest of us have in this room, except for Kimberly, <laughs> who's they married up to. Kimberly, That's right. Dr. Kimberly Moffat is with us. <laughs> uh, Kimberly Moffat, of course, has uh, been a co-host in the show for a number of years now and has guest hosted on this program. She's associate professor of American studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, co-editor of a number of books. The first one being uh, Blackberries and Red Bones, Critical Articulations of Black Hair, Body Politics, and Africana Communities. Now working on a new book. So can we say that? Sure. Thank you. Working on a new book on Scandal. And what's the other one about? Scandal and... Scandal and Disney. And, 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 your, Disney, and your continuing <laughs> Disney work. So one of our kind of leading critics and thinkers about film and TV in our society. Uh, and Zeke Cohen's with us, who's a councilman here and has been one of the leading voices in uh, our community uh, on a number of issues. He represents District 1 on the east side of town. Good to have you in the studio, Zeke. It's an honor to be here, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here at talkatsteinershow.org by email. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, so do join us here, 410-319-8888. Uh, and uh, good to have you all with us. So let me begin here. Also interesting in the news today was that um, and we I called to Wanda this morning, uh, hoping she can call in at some point today if she gets the message, uh, because the city settled with her family mm. um, uh, for the death of her brother. And there was a million-dollar settlement, which was really interesting. She's not taking any part of the settlement, so she can continue West Wednesdays to continue the battle for uh, justice and a better uh, policing in our city and fewer people being assaulted by police. So that was a major thing happening in the midst of this mandatory minimum. So what are your thoughts about the connections between all this? Who wants to speak? Bob, why don't you go ahead? Um, you know, like, like, like I, I said in the previous conversation with you before, Mark, that um, right now in Baltimore we're, we're, we're fighting for the soul of the city. Um, and we had an interesting turning point where uh, my generation, millennials, um, are coming of age. You and, are. And, right. and, 
you know, it's now time to decide the next 20, 30 years of the city. Um, so with that said, um, at the forefront of that is <clears throat> injustice, is inequity, um, is segregation. It's addressing the longstanding issues that Baltimore has been facing um, for years. Um, you know, what, what, what happened with Tyrone West and, uh, you know, what, what happened, uh, what's happening now with the mandatory minimum, um, particularly issues within our criminal justice system, understanding how our criminal justice system shapes our society, how it shapes Baltimore, impacts the people living and working in Baltimore. Um, uh, this is the home of my, my parents, my, my family, my mother, my father. Um, and in the 90s, uh, when zero tolerance was introduced, I was a little boy. You know, um, some folks that are governing now in our city uh, was in office then. And hmm. I was a, a, a little boy, you know, completely oblivious to what was happening um, in, in Baltimore. Um, you know, as, as the years progress, um, we see not much has changed. Um, so, I, you know, the, the, the line has been drawn in the sand April 2015. You know, if, if we are to say, you know, here's a, is a starting point for us all. Um, and the decision has to be made on what our, we want our city to look like. Um, so it, it, it may seem like everything is a battle where we're talking about $15 minimum wage, where we're talking about Port Covington, um, where we're talking about mandatory minerals. Everything is a battle because those pieces of legislation impacts and shapes our city for the next 30, 50 years. Um, so uh, right now, you know, I, I can honestly say, uh, at least from my perspective and, and those of my colleagues, my brothers and sisters that are doing work in the community, um, it's business as usual for folks um, that, you know, we know our role. We know our part that we play um, in this fight um, and, and, and folks going to continue to fight it. Um, and, you know, the system is, um, <laughs> you know, folks in, in office, uh, some folks in office, <laughs> some folks in office are, are, are struggling with that change. Um, they're struggling with that pushback because um, probably something they haven't seen in their careers. Um, but it's a change that's necessary um, in order for to move Baltimore forward. You know, one of the things I'm thinking as you're speaking, <clears throat> Zeke, let me bring you in here and then turn to Dr. Mafadok next to me here, is that <clears throat> I was thinking about what we were just saying, you know, and I think about the people who were just elected to the city council, you being among them, Zeke, who were people in their 30s and 40s, uh, uh, mostly in their 30s, uh, um, who are taking lead and really standing up for things, which I think is really critically important. And I was thinking about this show, you know, look, I think there's a place for people of my generation in all this, because we've Absolutely. been in the struggle and not gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, for our program, what we were hoping for our show to do in the next year was to be this 71-year-old host staying here, but pulling back and allowing the Kimberly Moffats to take the mic and really have voices of a new generation coming in to take over mm -hmm. our airwaves. I think all we have to also think about in our politics, because this is... It is about the future. Yeah. It is about designing and creating a city that has not been, that, that, is, that will be run and controlled, whose direction will be different than it has been. I mean, I think you represent part of that as newly elected younger people, and the, younger people for me, y'all, you know, everybody on the phone is younger. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> Zeke? Yeah, 
you know, I got to be honest on this legislation. I had my own sort of personal progression with it. Um, you know, when the initial legislation came out, um, you know, I'm someone who really doesn't like guns. Um, I've had a gun pulled on me and put in my face. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of as a progressive, you know, I've always thought that the more we can do to keep guns away from people, the better. Um, and so when this came out, I had some mixed feelings about it. And I had to spend some time uh, listening to folks, um, particularly people of color in this city, um, mothers of victims, uh, young men, um, and to hear people say, you know, this isn't about gun control. This isn't that kind of an issue. This is about one more slap in the face of underserved, marginalized people in our city, um, and that this legislation is so tone deaf and is so not what we need right now. It is not a solution to the 200 plus murders that we're experiencing. It is not a solution to uh, the death of Tyrone West or Freddie Gray or any of the young men who've been taken out of this community, um, either in police custody or in um, you know, by uh, other young men or women, um, this is not the way to go. We don't want one more zero tolerance, mandatory minimum. Uh, that's the politics of the 90s and the 2000s, and we're not here for that. Uh, we're here for investing in our communities. We're here for lifting people up. We're here for programs like Safe Streets that are about empowering the folks who've uh, been in the system and providing them the tools and the voice to mediate conflict. Um, and so, you know, I had to really step back uh, and evaluate my own, where I was coming from on this, um, do some homework, do some research, look around the country. And what I found is that there really isn't any evidence that a law like this will actually decrease crime. Uh, if the folks that we say are committing the vast preponderance of crime, and I've heard our com police commissioner and many of our political leaders say this, are a small group of violent repeat offenders. Uh, there, there's just no reason why a one-year minimum uh, for illegal gun possession is going to deter uh, those folks from continuing to commit crime, especially when the state of Maryland already has a five-year mandatory minimum for crimes committed with a gun. Uh, and so, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest, I uh, you know, had to do some self-facing on this. Um, and I think I eventually uh, found what I think is the right position, which is that instead of doing mandatory minimums, um, instead of doing more sort of <coughs> tough on crime, uh, you know, let's lock them up and throw them in jail, Let's invest in safe streets. Let's invest in fixing our broken witness protection mm -hmm. program. Um, I was on the phone this morning, actually, with mm. one of my constituents who is who was a witness to a murder and is terrified uh, to to speak out to work with the police. Um, does not feel safe coming forward. Um, that is what's broken. And if we're gonna hold people accountable to the violence in our city, that disconnect, that distrust needs to be fixed. And I think that's a better place to start. 
Yeah, I think I'm in a, a similar spot as um, Ezekiel is because I am not a fan of guns either. And yeah. and in fact, I don't think I came around to even appreciating the role that guns play in our society, honestly, until November 2016, which is when I then decided that I, too, needed to be um, a gun owner and someone who needed to think about ways in which to protect my own family. Mm. Um, and that took 40 plus years for me to get to that point. But that's where I think we are in our society right now. But bringing this back to the local level, what I would say is it feels like another one of those attempts by politicians to do some quick, fast solution to let constituents know that we are trying to do something, that we are trying to address issues. And while I think that is a um, appreciative by many. I also think it's unfortunate and similar to what Zeke is al- has already raised for us, that it dismisses all of the issues that explain why illegal guns are on our streets in the first place or why we see um, young people believing that gun possession is necessary for their daily lives and their daily existence. And so until we are able to start addressing those issues, like what are the root causes of why we even get to that point and start funneling funds in that direction instead of trying to find ways to continue increasing our jail numbers and prison um, uh, population and raise money off of the backs of people who already can't afford to exist, it's going to continue. And so this is an opportunity, which is why I was so glad to see a number of constituents come out to speak back to the council to say, we deserve to be heard, that that was an important step in what I think is happening in Baltimore City. So I have, I have two thoughts here. One, I want to talk about the politics for a moment, and, and then, but I really want to get into the heart of what we do instead and how we even get there in terms of both community activism, what the community wants, and what our elected officials can do to change the direction of where we take this. I was thinking of a conversation I had yesterday, which we'll get to in a moment, with Fanon Hill, Navashadea, and Kalima Young, who were in the studio yesterday. And one of the questions I asked them, what would you do if, instead of having somebody arrested, they brought a young man or young woman to you who was carrying a gun, and they put them in your, in your charge, what would you do? And and one of the things that that, that uh, Fanon said when he was sitting in where you're sitting right now, Bobby, uh, no, you're sitting where Zika's sitting. Uh, Fanon said, um, "That's happened already to me working in Cherry Hill." Mm-hmm. And a young man came to me, we took his gun away, we sat and talked, and he we, he, he was a gangbanger. He wanted to get out. We talked about his life. He's now 22 years old uh, and uh, living with the mother of his beautiful daughter, uh, and has become an HVAC repairman and is living, moved to Baltimore County, and is living his life. Um, and I said that I, I wanted to hear those stories because we have to think of different ways of addressing what we're seeing. And look, I, I put this out here before, I put it out again. I, you know, I was just talking last night to one of my oldest friends in life who I had not seen for a while, uh, a brother who I hung in the corner with as a, as a, as a teenager. And um, we both went through part of that life. And uh, there was a period of time when I carried a gun and carried a switchblade uh, in these streets. And not because I was out here to want to rob somebody, kill somebody, right. was because I knew there was a group of guys who wanted to do me, and I was not gonna have them do me without me standing up f- for myself. 
um, and not let somebody else walk over me. And that is the reason that so many young people in the city carry weapons right. is because they don't want someone else walking over them. And people, people in power, in charge, have to understand that. I don't think they understand what motivates at least, I would say, half of the young people in this town who are carrying weapons to carry weapons. It's not because they're part of a, the trade or the life. It's because they want to keep their life. And we have to understand that. We don't understand it, I think. Uh, I, I would, you know, say I heard something. I was listening to, you know, WA on Sunday night, Final Call, and, you know, Carlos Muhammad said something that really stuck out to me. He said, those closest to the problem have the best solutions. Um, and I think about this series I just done for the Afro, um, uh, a family on the front lines, um, looking at the Thomas family. Here's a family that was deeply impacted by violence, um, just starting with uh, Nathan Pop Thomas, um, who was once out there in the streets selling drugs um, and uh, an altercation ensued between him, actually someone that he knew um, in the neighborhood. Um, and that resulted in him being, you know, shot. Uh, and yeah, years later, his older brother uh, was shot and killed uh, as well. Um, and he also lost cousins and so forth um, to violence. Um, today, I would say Nathan Thomas is one of the Baltimore's biggest warriors, mm. just in terms of someone who's been through that lifestyle. And now he is, I, I would say, a champion for the betterment of this city, betterment of his community, Rosemont community. Um, his passion, his intensity, his commitment. I, I can honestly say for those who've never been in a lifestyle, they can't match his. Um, and the way he responds to the young men that are in his community, the way he connects with the young men in his community. I mean, while I was interviewing him, folks, young, young brother was coming up to him, you know, shaking his hand, speaking to him, um, connecting with him um, as if he was you know, the councilman of that district, um, uh, showing him um, love and appreciation and admiration. And I, 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 st I stood back and watched this, and I, and I said, you know what? Maybe we, we go about things the wrong way. Um, you know, similar to what safe streets do. You, 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 you brought brothers in, um, folks in, returning citizens, folks who once in a lifestyle to engage those already in the community. I would say they are the ones who were impacted by it. They are ones who dramatically, I mean, drastically transformed their life. Their stories are inspiring. I would say those folks are the best ones to go inside and connect public officials as well as those who are in those lives and lifestyle and have serious dialogue and conversations because it amazes me how we, we, we talk about open-air drug markets. We talk about locking them up. But the question is always asked. I have to ask, has there been a time when folks say, well, let's go talk to them. Let's, let's go see what's going on. Why are you out here? Um, without the cameras, behind closed doors, in the privacy, have liaisons like Nathan Thomas or like Emotep uh, 52 from Safe Streets to facilitate those type of conversations to figure out what's going on. We have to try a new way of doing things. And it, it seems like we all broke tape recorders because the solutions are already there. They're, they're in front so, of us. So the work is, is being done. It's, it's nothing. It, I'm not event, reinventing the wheel here. Uh, we're not, you know, talking about, you know, a state of utopia. Just these 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 programs, these people are already existing. And I don't think the, the, the city 
is reaching out and connecting with them to utilize the resources. These are homegrown folks, not consultants from California, New York, but folks are here <laughs> that could best uh, facilitate these type of tough to conversations. Zeke, um, I mean, how do you respond to that? Yeah, no, no I think that's right. Um, you know, it was uh, just less you know, a month ago that we got into this whole budget negotiation where Safe Streets was uh, pretty much going to collapse uh, in the mayor's uh, original budget, um, the $1.5 million, which is a pitiful amount that the city is giving to support this program, which we know has a 27% reduction in shootings in the neighborhoods they've been deployed. It's had a comprehensive evaluation from Dan Webster and the folks at Bloomberg. Um, so we know it works uh, just from a pure data analytics standpoint. And then we hear anecdotally stories like what Bobby just said, um, where, you know, you are literally piece by piece rebuilding communities, rebuilding trust, rebuilding respect. Um, and folks like Nathan, who have such a transformative impact in a way that I can't have, in a way that police officers often can't have, um, just that level of trust and respect is profound and to me it's a darn shame that the council had to get into all these theatrics and cut the mayor's budget and have this whole public battle to save 1.5 million dollars in safe streets when we're spending half a billion dollars on our police department that should not be the equation we should be doubling tripling quadrupling that investment on this program that's showing such clear returns and I've always thought the other piece is how can we transform it into something where it's not just mediating conflict, because I think that's incredibly important, but it's also providing an avenue toward economic opportunity. Because if we continue, you know, if, if the Safe Streets guys, and I've met a bunch of them, and they're some, some darn heroes, it, but if they keep going out there and, you know, they, they, they calm the beef and they, you know, they get it under control. Uh, but folks return back into that same level of despair and hopelessness and are still out there selling drugs and uh, in the life, um, you know, it's just going to be, it's just going to keep happening. I mean, we're, it's sort of a Band-Aid. And so, you know, could the next level of Safe Streets, could the model expand to provide economic opportunities for the folks that we know are disenfranchised by the criminal justice system and feel hopeless and don't feel like they have a way back into society uh, that doesn't involve crime. You know, I think, I think that's part of the piece before we take a break here, Kimberly. I mean, one of the things is, is that we, we had a program here the other day with owners of, of black restaurateurs who are African-American mm -hmm. in the city. And it was beyond just talking about rest, owning a restaurant. It had to do with the philosophy of how you run a business, who you hire, and how you change the economic nature of our city and the paradigm. I, I hate that word paradigm, but people use it too much. But that the, the um, how we develop our city economically, who gets the jobs, who gets, who, who's, who's allowed to start a business, how do people participate in the economic future of the city? That's the stuff, it seems to me. Long-term is what Zeke was saying that we have to wrestle with. Yeah, and, and I think um, 
going back to both Bobby and Zeke's comments that, you know, the programs like the Safe Streets or the individuals who are on the who are the foot soldiers and have the contact with the uh, young men and women that we're talking about are not seen as the ones that can get the job done. And oftentimes that has to do with us, again, as constituents looking for the quick fixes and looking for politicians to just make it happen for us. And if it's not visually and expediently done for us, then it's not possible. So even though we know what Safe Streets is doing and what effect and impact it has on communities, because it has such longevity in which for us to see that, that doesn't necessarily sit well with constituents. And so there's this visceral reaction to, we are now at the 200th homicide in the city today or as of yesterday. So what can we do now to just eradicate that so that we don't continue to see these numbers escalate safe streets for a number of people seems like that long distance like it will eventually happen and so no one um, feels the need in the mayor's budget to say that's where we keep putting money into but let's keep giving the police department some more money and all of a sudden we hopefully will see these radical um, shifts and changes in the paradigm that you're talking about mark where the number of 200 doesn't seem to escalate in the same way. And again, what I would say is that we're missing a mark that um, Bobby has already shared with us that we need to be working with the folks who know the communities, who know the individuals who are engaged in particular behaviors in our communities to see what we can do to shift not only that mindset of participating in crime, but again, your point about change of the economic reality of our communities so that young men and women can invest in the communities in that way instead of believing that this is their only out. So it's a very short break. We're going to come right back. And, uh, Bubby, you the first caller up. Folks, do join us at 410-319-8888. I want to hear your thoughts and ideas about this. Write to us by email to talkinsteinershow.org. Uh, send us a, t- a tweet at Mark Steiner. But do call in if you can, 410-319-8888. Join the conversation about the solutions. We'll be back. Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Uh, we're talking about the future of our city. We're facing uh, what is happening with mandatory minimums. The debate will be going to city council in the middle of August the what? When's it go to? When's it go for a vote? I believe 14th. August 14th. 14th. Uh, And uh, we may not be on the air here, but we will be uh, podcasting and you'll be hearing from us in this conversation because we're going to keep that conversation alive in the city. You just heard Councilman Zeeland's District 1 uh, and is joining us today here in the studio. Uh, He has made it clear he's opposed to mandatory minimums. We had John Bullock on the show yesterday. We had a number of people on here last week uh, from the city council. um, And Bobby Marfin Holmes is in the house. Father, founder of Son of a Dream, uh, co-director of three non-documentaries about uh, murder and life and power in this community that have been very powerful films. Uh, and he continues to do his work as a mentor in the city to young people and getting his master's degree in social work here at Morgan State University to boot a busy human being, <laughs> former producer here on the Mark Steiner Show and former producer as well for my brother Sean Yost and his show First Edition. And Dr. Kibley Moffat, uh, my colleague, my friend, co-conspirator, uh, co-host and host here on the Mark Steiner Show, who's also Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of numerous books. And you all are 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkinsteinershow.org by email. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, but let's go right to the phones, 410-319-8888. Your thoughts. Bubby, you're on the air. Welcome. 
Good morning, Bobby. Yes, there. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. If you're on the air. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Great conversation. I was at City Hall for the mandatory minimum meeting. I was so proud of Brother Councilman Zeke Cohen there. He made me proud. Thanks, Bobby. We just lost our phones. What just happened? Okay, so Bobby, if you want to call, Bobby, you want to call back, please call back. I don't know what's happened to our phones, but they're, they're working, because I just see they're on my screen again, 410-319-8888, call it back. We want to get you on the air. So do we want to go right to, so we do have Bobby? You don't have Bobby right now. Okay, so this is a quick commentary here, and then we'll go right back to Bobby if he pops up. So he was just saying he was proud of what you all are doing. So so what what is it that, that, that people can actually do? What policies need to change? What do we have to literally do? What would it mean, let's say, let's, let's take what you described here as a patchwork for a moment. And I understand it because it is in some ways a patchwork. Yeah. But it's a critical patchwork, which is save streets or women from out for justice or the, yeah. or the women from power inside if they were kind of funded to do the work. Or people we've seen in this program, whether it's Navasha uh, and Fanon and their work, the work you do, Bobby, and other people we can mention all across the city who are actually doing the work. Supposing we, we funded two, three, four, five hundred 500 people in programs that actually work. Yeah. That also give people jobs, build families, and build community. I mean, how does that happen? How do you change the nature of how we spend the money in the city? How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is that, it, Cohen. Um, you know, I, I do think that uh, President Jack Young and the city council took a pretty bold and radical step in creating the youth fund uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Before I was on the council, um, some of my students, I was a educator running a after-school program at the time. So my students were very involved in uh, lobbying and advocating for that legislation. Uh, and it was a really big coalition of young people that were involved in that. And I think that it, we're looking at about $12 million per year has the potential to be transformative, not just in that that money will go directly to youth serving young people, but in how we think about how that money goes out. Um, I think some of the thought behind creating the youth fund is that traditionally uh, the, f the foundation community in this town has not always served uh, those organizations that are serving youth on the ground from the community, um, black-led organizations that often don't get a lot of love uh, from those of us in positions of power and authority. And I think what the youth fund has the potential to do is to recognize the work that's being done. When I used to teach in Sandtown, um, there were informal networks. There were uh, there was this one mother who sort of had like an after school program in her house, um, but didn't get recognized, didn't get paid uh, for that work. And I think the youth fund could be a way of finding the types of folks that Kimberly and Bobby have been talking about. They're out there doing the work. And I wonder if we need that we need a fund for criminal justice reform, um, for you know the safe streets type of programs, uh, because the traditional funding mechanisms clearly aren't working. It's not enough. We're not doing enough to get resources into those communities. Um, and so maybe that's part of it, is we got to rethink how money goes out to these types of programs. Let, before we jump in, let, let me go back to the phones and get Bubby back and let me finish his thought. Bubby, you're back on the air. I mean, I was saying that I was at the city hall council, the city hall meeting. Mm. And first of all, our Costello was very condescending, very arrogant, very disrespectful to the people. The problem was when they called 
the professor up from John Hopkins when we've been there since 830, mm-hmm. and we signed in. So that's a one of the problems. But let's be clear. I'm a resident of Sandtown, Winchester. I lived in Sandtown, Winchester under Mark O'Malley Zero Tolerance Policy. So most of the people in Sandtown, this sound like a version of Zero Policy. That's mm-hmm. why I had two sons murdered, and I'm vehemently against this mandatory minimum. Let's deal with the issues that we have in Baltimore. And the problem that we see, how can the city council be so quick to pass this legislation when they have not passed the $15 minimum wage? Let's be very clear. They were silent to the whole mess that was going on in the Baltimore City Housing Authority. I, I was so proud of Mr. Cohen, council councilman, uh, Z. Cohen, I was proud of him because he stood on convention and he stood on the truth. On the truth, the, all the anecdotal information says. Mm. We keep drop, Bobby keeps dropping. I'm not sure why, but sorry. We'll, we'll see what's good. so. Uh, um, but I think that that is important. So I mean, the question is, there were a lot of criticisms of this town of the of the. Uh, uh, hearings that were taking place, just the way they were structured, not getting people's voices heard. Were you there, Bobby? No, no, I was following via social media, but yeah. via social media, what was happening. Were you in the house? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you're not in that committee. Not on the committee, but mm-hmm. sat through the entire seven-hour hearing um, because I think it's uh, really important, and you know there was nowhere else that I should be than that hearing. Um, and, you know, I will say that I think actually Bobby, the caller, uh, really put his finger on. What I heard in that hearing, um, which is folks are tired of this paradigm where when we feel structurally unsafe, we immediately reach for harsher sentencing or harsher policing or this sort of zero tolerance. I mean, to me, this is in the spirit of zero tolerance, which we know from this city doesn't work. You know, I, I remember when I taught in Sandtown where Bobby lives and was referencing, you know, my first couple weeks as a ignorant right out of college person teaching in that community. Um, I kept walking around wondering, like, where are all the men in this neighborhood? Uh, like, literally, that was what I was like curious about. Like, I would see elderly women. I would see kids. Um, I taught, so a lot of kids. But I couldn't find any men. And I remember asking a pastor who's right next to the school, where are all the men? And his response to me was, that's your zero tolerance. That's your uh, mass incarceration right now. They're gone, and they're not coming back for a while. And when they do come back, it's going to be even worse. Um, And I think that's what folks, you know, Bobby said it really well. That's what folks in Sandtown feel with this legislation is instead of us being able to pass a $15 minimum wage, which would have lifted 83, I think it was close to 83,000 people uh, into a better life, uh, we're focused on this punitive punishment paradigm that is about how can we get more people off of our streets and into jail. Um, And that's really what I heard in the chambers. That's what so much to me of the anger that I saw in front of me was about is people feeling like we're not listening. We're still not listening. Even though we've had this election, we've got eight new council members, we've got a new mayor. This type of legislation is not what our communities need. 
And that's what I heard. So, Mark, I want to add to I want to add to this point that um, you know so much of this conversation, and even with the minimum wage um, uh, debate, that we keep dealing with these class disparities, but we don't want to deal with class. Mm. And so, even Bobby's the caller's comments that he's raising is still situated in class, where he's saying even, and which I also follow by social media, even during the hearing. The people who were being reified and given the space to speak and have voice versus those who were in the space and had been there for hours to be heard, not being heard or being told that they will get to them at some point. That also illustrates how much we are allowing class to dictate what it is um, that we want as a city to be heard. And so the college professor, I mean, it's my profession and I, re I recognize it. I can walk into certain spaces and if I choose, if I'm I'm just Kimberly Moffat, there's a different reaction. But if I am Dr. Moffat, there is a completely different way in which I am um, addressed and dealt with and the space that I am given. So it is exactly what we have a tendency to do. But the unfortunate side of that is it then reinforces the idea that class is still at the root of so much of what we are dealing with in this city and nation. But we don't want to have that real conversation about how class is really screwing up so much of what happens in generation after generation, in particular in the black community. I, I, Go ahead, then we'll get back to the phones right here. Go ahead, Bobby. I would encourage <clears throat> folks, um, yeah, yeah, everyday folks, folks on the city council, the mayor, um, to read the Justice Policy Institute report that was released in 2015, looking at how much uh, the state of Maryland spent in corrections, particularly how Baltimore City is impacted. Baltimore City has the zip codes with the highest people incarcerated, um, according to that 2015 report. If you look at the same neighborhoods, the same zip codes, these are the same neighborhoods, zip codes that are impoverished, same neighborhoods, zip codes that are also experiencing the rate of homicides that we're seeing. And I'm willing to bet these are the same um, neighborhoods that are also struggling with uh, uh, health disparities, food deserts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, this is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. And then funny enough, this report was released February 2015. Um, before you know uh, that the city blew up, um, and and the, the report really outlined Baltimore City is very good at locking people up. <laughs> we're, we're very good at and it. children uh, and, and 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 children very very good at invested a lot right. into it already. Um, the report I'm looking through it and I'm like wow I, I, I can't believe you know yeah and, and I was on a uh, the, uh, you know, working for uh, first edition at the time I'm like I can't believe we didn't dig into this the way we needed to it goes community by community zip code by zip code looking at the communities that are have the highest population incarcerated and those that do not it is not rocket science we already done that and Baltimore City is already good at it um, that's that's what makes it so troubling and just to bring it back to to really hone in at, at a micro level um looking at the families i work by i constantly have i, I, I currently have seven uh families on my case uh seven kids on my caseload um out of those seven i'll say about three of those kids has been impacted by incarceration personally that their yeah. father um was taken out of their lives right. um and, and one that uh lost his a family member to violence um so i i, I get it and in terms of people want safety. Mm -hmm. right. But I think we need to redefine and reimagine what public safety look like in Baltimore. And I think that's the challenge. If I could just jump in real quick, yeah, Mark. Right, I, I think that's part of the political challenge here is that the narrative that's been propagated is that we're soft on crime. 
right? Like that's what I hear in a lot of my communities is we, the politicians, the judges, and all the rest are soft on crime. Uh, you know, we're all, uh, you know, we've got, we let people out. We let violent criminals out. We don't hold people accountable. And that politics makes it extremely difficult to do what we've all been talking about because anytime I talk about safe streets or alternatives to incarceration, I know I'm going to check my inbox. I'm going to have a bunch of folks mm -hmm. from my district telling me this is why we're never going to elect you again is because you're, you're soft on criminals and you don't understand and you don't blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think Bobby's absolutely right that the numbers and the facts just don't bear that out. We are one of the most incarcerated cities in the country. Um, and it's how do we get that narrative out there more? And that's part so of the challenge. We have a ton of people calling. Oh, we just lost Tawanda, didn't we? She'll call right back. So as soon as we let, her, let me know as soon as she calls back, we'll get her back on the air. So Tawanda Jones called and I want to let her have her say about uh, what happened with this settlement. But we have a, a Tawanda is there. Then we have a lot of callers as well. Um, and so I'm going to go to Tawanda, but let me ask you a, a quick, very, very, very quick question, see, really quick. <laughs> um, what are the chances of mandatory minimum passing the city council? Uh, I think it's very close. Uh, I think it's 50-50. I will say that the amendment <clears throat> that Dr. Bullock introduced uh, really kind of waters it down in, in, in some ways. So it's, it's pretty different legislation, and we should all take a hard look. I'm still voting no, uh, but, you know, it's... Well, as I said, to, Dr. As I said to, 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 to Councilman Bullock yesterday on the show, the, the watered-down version is already a state law. Right. So Correct. what are we doing? Right. Why are we adding a $1,000 fine to it, which right. means the kid who has no money is going to be given a $1,000 fine. I mean, Correct. This, what are we, this is not making any sense. Right. So... Just it does if you're if you're still trying to pad the city budget though and but, and earn money off of the backs of folks who already are struggling. So let's not water it down. Let's just say no. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. And Tawanda Jones, you're on the air. Tawanda, how you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you for calling in. Wait, let me. I'm in the classroom. I'm step out so you can hear me. Oh, I can hear. Yeah, I, can, I, <laughs> of, I didn't know you yeah. didn't realize you were working today. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. You hear a bunch of students, but I'm stepping out. A bunch of campers. I'm going to step in the hall for two seconds. Sure, sure. Yes. Okay. Tawanda, good, good to hear your voice. So, oh, be here. So there was a settlement. Dwight Pettit took the case, and there was a settlement of a, a million dollars almost total with, with the two different places. But you stepped away from that settlement. Talk about why you personally stepped away from that settlement. Yes, because um, at the end of the day, I always advocate for not settling out, and I always advocate for, like, just literally having that moment to actually step in a courtroom, look those killer cops in the face, and win your case. That's always been my belief. That's always been my belief. And the only reason why I jumped aboard on the first place was actually, I know it was about the income for us with my brother's children, and I wanted to secure their future, but I was in it on the part for the outcome. I have always been on the outskirts of it for the outcome. And to me, that that's real accountability, because you're not going to walk me in a room and set me at a table, the same table, in fact, that you sold out with the Caucasian family for and dug for $1.2 million at that same table, and then you want to put my brother in that same box as an animal? No, you're not going to do that, no. So, and then we also know how the city, let's be clear, the city, if you accept any type of money from them, and you, and you speak out and they can't craft your language, they will take every 
heart back. So I stepped out of this not so that way I would not jeopardize my brother's kids, you know, being able to get that money because I'm going to speak. Nobody's going to craft what I say. And as hard as it was for me to step away from that part of just, like, represent my brother and his kids, you know, I had to. It was something because at the end of the day it's about integrity. It's about integrity. It's about fighting this fight and keeping it going. And at the end of the day, like I told everybody yesterday, marked a significant day for me for the simple fact not about the monetary, because I'm not in it. I'm on the right side of justice. I'm on the side where I'm trying to get these killer cops and cell blocks. And the reason why I say that is now any wall that was built up between me and the state's attorney's office, you know, Marilyn Mosby and whatnot, that said, you know, wait till the case is resolved. Well, now it's resolved. I want to see what actually happens. I want to see my brother's case get reopened. And I want to see these um, officers prosecuted accordingly. So you, you're going to continue West Wednesdays? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So how many how many how many weeks in a row was it? Yesterday it was 209 weeks, 1,400, and as today 64 days nonstop fighting. And I'm going to continue on fighting. I would never walk away from this fight, never walk away from representing my brother and my brothers in the community and my brothers and sisters all around the world that are being brutalized at the hands of law enforcement officers who are supposed to serve and protect us. Well, Tawanda, I, I, Tawanda Jones, I want to tell you one thing. I'll let you go back to your kids that you're working with here in the summer camp. But uh, you were on this show in the very beginning after this happened uh, several years ago. And uh, whatever vehicle that we have and we continue our conversations here in the community, you'll have that voice continuing. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate your strength and uh, your power and uh, your ability not to give up and keeping your voice out there. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you, Mark Steiner. You have a blessed day. All right, Tawana, take care of your kids, and we'll be talking very soon. I'm glad you could join us. She is a sister who's been out there. This is not. She won't stop. Mm. Bless her. Yeah, bless her. <laughs> she won't stop. 410-319-8888. Let's try to get a couple of callers in here. Uh, let's go to uh, Jay. You're on the air. Hey, I, uh Very well. Good morning. Oh, uh, man. Um, uh-huh. I just... Uh, Starts with the um, the Jack Young, and they bringing up the, this new law for this gun. I'm saying, when you living here in these streets, and how these streets are today, it's like a catch-22. I mean, it's like, especially as a black man trying to survive out here right now, it's it's. I mean, it's like for those that you get, you don't have to be breaking no laws, but I'm saying the, the murder rate itself should speak for itself. These kids. A gone banana, and it's it's crazy. And the thing is, if you get caught, then and you're not even doing nothing. You're just trying to make it home tonight, trying to see your folk. I'm saying I'm right here in West Baltimore, Sandtown, and this is I mean it's just crazy. But and I thank God for the Unger Act for all the old heads just coming up town and really got their mind right. And it's like. A hundred percent of them guys, and they really—that's the answer. Those are the guys. Jay, I appreciate the call too, because the the the, the men who got out under the Unger Act, he's talking about people who had their uh, life sentences uh, um, ended uh, because of the way they were tried. That was illegal, putting people in jail, not knowing all the evidence and the more, and they were freed from prison. And they have stepped up these men from the who have been freed. Uh, all of them, um, and I think that that is really kind of a 
we've had many of those men on the show because they are working in the community to alleviate the violence and not just alleviate the violence, to just do be a positive image as older men out in the community. I think that's been really important. Absolutely. Like I said before, and on top of the show, Mark, um, we, we have to sit down with these men um, and, and listen to them. I come to them with ideas of our own, but listen to them and, 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 and let them lead the solutions on how to engage um, and how to establish some sense of understanding. It's going to take some time because it's a trust level there, but that's why you have those brothers and those sisters um, in the middle to facilitate those type of conversations, folks from Alpha Justice, uh, to facilitate those type of conversations behind closed doors, um, those difficult conversations, because it will be difficult. Uh, but they are needed um, to engage uh, young brothers and sisters that's out there that's 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 caught up in the madness. Um, to try to do it without them, I, I, it's like trying to drive a car without wheels. You're not going anywhere. Let me try to get in the call right here. Come back to our panel to close out. 410-319-8888. Duan on light, line five, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Welcome. Is it Duan or Duane? It's Duane. Duane, I'm sorry. Got you. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, yeah, I'm from Baltimore City, and um, I think that the, our council members are forgetting that, or it seems, okay, you know, I, I totally understand and support a comprehensive solution to these these challenges of crime. Of course, there has to be a comprehensive solution. But we still have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Let's not forget that all of us who are doing the right thing, who are being, you know, good citizens that are not tearing up the city and killing one another, you know, we deserve safety, okay? And that's going to require an acute solution as well as a comprehensive solution, okay? Because, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not viewing the forest, if you're stuck, you know, staring at one tree, then you're going to miss the forest. And guess what? We, the people who are, are, are not, you know, out there tearing up the city and doing all this crime, we deserve some recognition for the fear that we feel when we go out wondering if we're going to make it home. So what are you, what are you suggesting? Tell me, what, what, is that, what do you mean directly? Well, what I'm, what I, what I'm suggesting is that if, they don't, if, 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 if Mr. Cohen and his fellow council members don't support this uh, change in the gun law, then what is going to be their acute solution? Because I keep hearing them talk about this comprehensive solution, which is, you know, time the sky and we'll maybe five years, three years from now. Okay, but we need an acute okay. addressing of the crime problem for now. So I, I hear that. So let, let me let them let me let the, the response come from Zeke and then go around the room very quickly here about the, the acute, acute solution because there are many people who feel the same way that we. They're terrified. What do you do about the gangbangers in the street and the guns? Yeah, and look, you know, I hear you. Um, that is that is real. There is a genuine level of fear and anxiety permeating our city right now um, in pretty much all corners, whether it's some of the wealthier districts that I represent or whether it's West Baltimore, East Baltimore, all over the place. Uh, the violence is real and it's maddening. And having spent a lot of time recently listening to uh, mothers of victims, um, it, it is it is terrible, and, and I understand the caller's frustration and anger. What I am saying is, locking more people up is not the answer. That is the wrong answer. That is an answer that we've already tried. We did it, and I would argue to you that part of what we're seeing now on our streets is people who were locked up during zero tolerance came out, 
with no job prospects, with no opportunities back into society, and are now out there committing these crimes. And we have got to learn from our own history. We've got to be smarter than to just fall apart and do the same thing we already did. Um, and that's why I'm going to continue to push back against this legislation. The two things that I lifted up, I wrote an op-ed about this. One is immediately investing more in our Safe Streets program, which again, we know is not some pie-in-the-sky futuristic <laughs> plan. It's it's now. We can, we can do that now. And the other thing is a real focus on rebuilding witness protection. Uh, which is is just a really challenged institution in our city, and so much of what I hear of people who've tested, who've been witnesses, is they are afraid to come forward, and that enables folks who are out there with the guns committing the crimes to keep using them. Um, I think those are two things we could do right now that would have an immediate impact on violence. I also think it's important to understand that, yes, the violence is real, but it's also quite concentrated. And it is directly impacting the communities that these gentlemen are and women are carrying guns. And so, yes, we can talk about violence as this uh, epidemic that is happening in our society, but we can't forget that it is only happening in very targeted, concentrated areas in the city and the nation so that it isn't impacting us individually in the ways that people are talking about much of this pushback against the violence is saying I don't want it to come over here so keep it away and what is the best way in order for us to keep it away by creating sentencing that keeps people bogged down so that they're not in the community but this is something that is impacting communities in ways that it's not in certain parts of Zeke's district it's it's closer to those districts and those areas in which I live and so those are the people who should be the voices that are speaking Speaking, not the ones who aren't directly impacted by this. Although I, I do so, have to challenge that just a little bit, in that we had a uh, relatively recently a murder of a young man walking home, uh, and his mother has been out there. And uh, absolutely, very so we can always point to very specific examples of that occurring. But I am speaking. If we look at sure. in terms of percentages, we know where this violence is happening. Absolutely, well, but I think it impacts all of us, and we all have a stake and, in it. And, and we like up against the clock here. <laughs> so, so, and it is. It is bleeding into many neighborhoods, though, yep. and I think that's something we have to. That that's well, it is also real. I mean, we were at Larry Jackson's house for his book signing on Charles Himes on St Albans, which is a very lovely tree tree line neighborhood. Mm-hmm. One of the neighbors who was there said, "Yeah, there have been two muggings and a carjacking mm-hmm. in our community." Mm-hmm. So things are bleeding out, and so people do are looking for this. Bob, you have thirty seconds. Um, Literally. I, I, I will only reiterate um, that locking folks up is not going to get us anywhere. You lock someone up for three, five years, they're coming back to that community, folks. Um, and also, I will I would emphasize the community response. Um, folks in the ceasefire are come up with community solutions on how to address this within their own communities. Right. By Marvin Holmes, thanks for being in the house. Uh, no problem. Thanks for being in the house. It's been great riding this ride, and uh, we're going to continue. <laughs> we are going to continue. <laughs> Councilman Zeke Cohen, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thanks for coming in the studio. Yeah, I love you, man. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Good to have you here. And, and Tisha and Doug and the others we couldn't get to, I apologize. Kimberly Moff and I will hang around for this next hour, so don't go away. We're going to talk about people of color and children's books and more, which fits into this conversation. Stay with us. Don't go away.